You can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're just going to start reading. <laughs> wow, wow. Uh, one of my favorite um, passages of Scripture actually comes in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. There are seven times uh, John will use the word blessed, seven beatitudes. They're not numbered for us, so we don't always talk about it. You know how John loves this number seven. There's seven churches and seven angels and seven spirits and seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls and on and on and on. He also had seven beatitudes, but he doesn't say number one, number two, number three, right? But the first of the seven beatitudes is blessed is the one who reads this book and those who hear and keep what's written therein for the time is near. So blessed is the one who reads and then everyone who hears, which would include the reader, and not just hears, but keeps what is written therein for the time is near. So I love it. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Uh, how many of you have ever read the Bible and then said to yourself, what in the world does that mean? Okay. Uh, or perhaps you've heard a preacher interpret a passage of Scripture and you said, how in the world did he or she ever get that? <laughs> Too many of you raised your hands. Hopefully that wasn't in the context of Oasis. So today... Uh, we're going to go back and look at ways of reading and using Scripture in our life together, in our community, as, as well as ways that we might also read in our personal lives. So the early church, and especially later in the Middle Ages, recognized that Scripture was layered. Right? It's kind of what Shrek said about ogres. Ogres have layers. To which, of course, you know, Donkey objected and said, why did you have to say, uh, uh, well, he said, they're like onions, excuse me. And uh, Donkey objected and said, why do you have to say they're like onions? Why can't you say they're like parfaits? Because parfaits have layers. Uh, which is true. Both onions have layers and parfaits have layers. These are both true statements. Whether or not ogres have layers, I'm not exactly sure. But I can tell you this, that Scripture does have layers. And sometimes the layers of Scripture are a bit like onions, and sometimes the layers of Scripture are a bit like parfaits. But in any case... Uh, it started in the early church, and it was formalized during the Middle Ages, and they recognized that there were four layers to Scripture. The first layer was historical. This is kind of the literal account of a story, that there were people in places and times and things were happening, and the Scriptures are the stories of how those happened. It is the testimony of the people of Israel and how they feel like God had called them and chosen them to live in this particular place. However, that was not the only way the church was reading these stories. They read them historically, but then they also read them allegorically. They understood that this story was more than just a simple historical account of what happened, but that it had some kind of secondary meaning. It expressed uh, something that God was doing in and amongst the people of the world. And then they would read a third level, a third level of reading, which is moral. I think a, a lot of contemporary Christians try to reduce Scripture just to that. Like, what's the principle here? What's the moral of the story? I think that can be both helpful because I think it is one of the important layers, but it would be like eating a parfait and, like, scrapping off the top bit and then trying to eat a layer and leave the rest. It's not exactly how it's supposed to be experienced. Uh, the last level is like a spiritual reading. The spiritual reading is not just how does this kind of apply to me or us now, but what is God doing in kind of the big picture? Like how does this play out in the end? 
So I thought I'd give you an example of how this was done in the Middle Ages. And so Dante read Psalm uh, 114 verses 1 and 2 and offered it as an example of how Scripture has multiple layers. So here, here's the psalm for us. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became God's sanctuary, Israel his dominion. Now, you can read that historically. It's a straightforward account of something that happened. The Hebrews were in slavery uh, in Egypt. They were led out of slavery, out of that strange land with the strange folk, into their own land where then God uh, would be with them. So that's kind of a historical reading. But then Dante said that we can also have an allegorical reading of this text, where this text points to our redemption in Christ and that which was accomplished in Christ, bringing us out of the bondage of sin into the kind of freedom of grace. Now you might say, well, how can you get that there? Well, this is something that the New Testament writers would often do with the Old Testament. So in Matthew chapter 2, for example, he quotes Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, which says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. So if you go back to Hosea and you look at the literary context and the historical context, Hosea is talking about the Exodus. So that's, I mean, that's definitely what Hosea is talking about. Matthew reads Hosea's discussion of the Exodus and says, Aha! God is prophesying about how, how Jesus would go down into Egypt with his parents, and then after the death of Archelaus, they kind of come back, right? So out of Egypt I have called my son. So in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew says this is what Hosea was prophesying about. And frankly, there's no one who had been reading Hosea quite like that. So if, if Matthew were attending a contemporary evangelical seminary, and he was taught the historical uh, and literary exegesis of a text. And then he offered that reading of Hosea as a messianic prophecy. Uh, he would get flunked, right? That's not how you're supposed to read these texts. Except it is how the ancient people read those texts, which is why their, their most recent predecessors, the early church, read it that way which is why the Middle Ages, the, the medieval church, continued to read it that way, which is why it suggests that we don't necessarily need to overcome these things, that this is a legitimate way of reading. Dante's uh, third reading is the moral reading of this same passage. When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob, from the people of a strange language, Judah became God's sanctuary, Israel's dominion. So the moral of the story right, Dante would say, is the conversion of a person from misery of sin to a state of grace. So it's not just in the work of Christ, but then how it plays out in my life. And then lastly, the spiritual reading, he said, is the exodus of the present physical state to a resurrected eternal state. So this is a story, a historical event of how the exodus happened. It's a representation of what Christ is doing. It's a representation of what happens to us when Christ does such things. And it's a promise yet fulfilled that we'll have in the life to come. It's a lot, right? Maybe, maybe that's a little bit of reading into. Maybe it's a little bit reading out of. But it's that kind of uh, give and take of how these texts have been used and perhaps you know, should be used. One of the leading thinkers 
in terms of ministry that has impacted my life in terms of how I interpret and try to faithfully respond to Scripture is uh, John Wesley. So Wesley and his brother Charles uh, were both Anglican priests. They were kind of Oxford trained, and uh, they lived in England, and they, all their lives they kind of were Anglican priests, right? But they were also missionaries to um, the colonies and what would eventually become the United States. Uh, Wesley, in particular, spent a lot of time in Georgia. So just imagine that, being a missionary to Georgia. <laughs> Maybe we need more missionaries to Georgia, I'm not sure. But um, his brother Charles uh, was, a, was a famous kind of hymn writer. Uh, we, we, we sing many of his hymns. He wrote like over 2,000. So like, Hark the Her- Herald Angels Sing. Christmas time's kind of around the corner. That's Charles Wesley. So we're talking about John and Charles. And, and John said this. Um, John was always kind of emphasizing the priority of Scripture, that Scripture is this kind of primary source where we learn about God and where we learn to kind of how to behave. And it's the life of Scripture in our lives. But then he would also say that it's not the sole authority, that it's complemented by tradition, by reason, and by experience. And eventually, in fact, it wasn't until the 1960s, but there's a Wesleyan scholar by the name of Albert Outler who coined a term to refer to kind of Wesley's method of theology, and he called it the Wesleyan quadrilateral. So this was a play off the Lamberth quadrilateral, which was an Anglican piece. And in the, in the Lamberth quadrilateral, they believed in Scripture, they believed in the, the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed, uh, they believed in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and they believed in the historical episcopate, meaning that the, um, the bishop would kind of lay hands on the next, next bishop and lay hands on the next bishop. And so you, one, one kind of minister had been trained by the other, and so you had this kind of succession of ministerial training. So let's take a look, though, at uh, what uh, Outler calls this Wesleyan quadrilateral and uh, what happens. So the first point is Scripture. As we said, for Wesley, uh, Scripture was this kind of primary source. So this is the uh, 500th anniversary of the Protestant movement. Uh, were you familiar with that, right? So Martin Luther, it was 500 years ago. He was a Catholic priest, and he kind of nailed his 95 kind of arguments to the door of the church there, and it got him in a bit of trouble with the church, with the Catholic church. So when we think about Christianity kind of broadly, in the, in the world today, there's, there's lots of Christians, um, some of which you might not be that familiar with. I mean, like the Eastern Church especially, the Orthodox, the, the Syrian, the Coptic, the Ethiopian. We hear a little bit about them in the news, right? The, the Coptic Christians in Egypt have been persecuted pretty significantly by ISIS over the last four or five years, and you've seen stuff about that. But the way they express uh, the faith is significantly different in some ways the way we do, right? But they're still Christian. And so when we have with the Eastern Church and we have the, the Catholic Church, and then we have this other group, these kind of uh, the Reformed Church are sometimes called Protestants, you know, part of Protestantism. Maybe we self-identify with that group to a certain degree. It's a little unfortunate for me that the, the, the root of the name is protest. Like, we're against the church. We're not really against the church, right? I, I, like the, I actually prefer the word reform or reforming, right? It's a little bit better, kind of reforming the church. But in any case, this is the 500th anniversary of Protestantism. 
It's the 500th anniversary. Literally, late October, 500 years ago, is when the young uh, Augustinian priest, Martin Luther, nails his stuff to the door, right? So um, <clears throat> there are these, and I, I alluded to this last week, but, or maybe the week before, but there are these five statements, and the, and the first one was kind of sola scriptura, like scripture alone, which Wesley would agree, I think. I mean, the Anglican movement uh, kind of was birthed out of the continental reform movement. So I think he would buy in the fact that, yeah, scripture is our primary authority, but he was always then quick to say that scripture is not completely alone because it's always in the context of tradition, reason, and experience. And I would even say that this is what scripture itself teaches. That scripture never teaches that it's this kind of sole authority. It teaches that God is the sole authority. It teaches that scripture is true and trustworthy and applicable in our lives. But it would also say that if you look only to the text, that you could run into the same problems when you looked only to the sacrifice. So, like, before we had the text, uh, the people of God worshipped in sacrifice. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever sacrificed an animal as an act of worship. Um, I would be interested to know your story <laughs> about what you were doing, if that were the case. But for a long time, the people of God worshipped God by sacrificing. Now, Sometimes they made the sacrificing the point instead of making God the point. And God would actually get upset with their sacrifices. He's like, your sacrifices are making me sick at my stomach. Like, I can't take it anymore because you're living like the devil, but then you come and sacrifice. I might imagine that God has felt a bit the same way as we've shifted from focusing on the sacrifice to focusing on the text. I mean... The sacrificial system seems to have originated from God, but it wasn't the point, right? It wasn't the end. It was a means to an end. But when, you're, when you treat your means to an end as an end in itself, then, then you've kind of missed the point. It's, a, it's about God. And I think maybe sometimes we've read Scripture and we've argued about Scripture to the point where God's like, you're making me sick at my stomach a bit, right? Because it's not about that. It's about me, meaning about God. And so part of what Wesley's method then provides for us is this way in which Scripture then gets placed in this context with tradition, reason, and experience. I also mentioned last week as well the 2 Corinthians 3 passage where Paul says, till, till this day, he says, they will read Moses, but a veil covers their eyes. It's only when they turn to Christ is the veil removed. And then we live in the Spirit, and the Spirit of the Lord is freedom. And we're transformed from glory to glory into the image of Christ. So we start with Scripture, but then we realize it's in the context of a tradition. Now when we say tradition, what do we mean? Well, in a world today, particularly this kind of post-Reformation, post-Protestant world, we've, we get uh, people who kind of just identify with their local church. So at the college where I teach, it's affiliated with the Assemblies of God. It's a classical Pentecostal group. But the largest uh, part of our student body, like 33% of our student body, consider themselves non-denominational. Uh, that's a lot. But what is a non-denominational church? Did it just float down out of heaven? Did God just kind of send it for that locale? Is it not part of the greater streams of Christians? I mean... 
if, if you just have a local non-denominational church, do they think of themselves as though they're just God's gift? Are they the only Christians? What, you know, what about the, the Orthodox and, and the Catholics and the Lutherans and the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the Baptists and the Episcopals and the Anglicans and the Mennonites and the Church of Christ and the Nazarenes? You know, we can go on and on and on, right? There's a lot of groups. So what is our tradition? So if we go tradition, capital T, kind of like the Anglicans, then we kind of follow the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene's Creed. They're two, two kind of interesting pieces. The Apostles' Creed was kind of designed to summarize what a Christian would believe, and they would confess that right before baptism. So it's like the first person singular. I believe in the Father. I believe in the Son. I believe in the Spirit. It was kind of broken up into three sections. Uh, one about the Father, one about the Spirit, uh, one about the Son, one about the Spirit. And they would say that, and then they get baptized. There were other creeds that got written to kind of say, okay, this is kind of what we believe. We believe this and not that. And uh, because um, the faith can be kind of synchronistic at times, and it can kind of pick up kind of beliefs from, from other faiths, uh, and sometimes that's not particularly helpful. <laughs> and so they're trying to draw some borders, and so that's what the creeds have done. So the Nicene Creed, and I'm going to share another one, uh, share one with you here on the screen. It's the Constantinople Creed, which is just like an expanded, revised version of the Nicene Creed. Notice, one, it's written in the first person, plural. So this is not a, a confession before baptism. This is a confession of what we believe, right? This is what, when we say we're Christians or we're followers of Christ, this is what we mean, right? We believe this. Now, the church has been saying this for about 1,700 years. So when sometimes people say, well, I don't know what Christians really believe, well, this is it. You know, this is like the summary. The Orthodox say this, the Catholics say this, the Protestants say this, the Pentecostals say this. I mean, they, like they all say this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Ghost and of the Virgin Mary, and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, and suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. From thence he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, we look for the resurrection of the dead, and the life of the world to come. Amen. Like, like that's Christianity in a nutshell. And, and Christians would, would recite this. They would say it every time they came together to worship so that they would know kind of what they believed. So when they go to read the scriptures, they have this tradition that's kind of already giving them this frame of what this story is all about. Like the story is about God, who is the creator, maker of everything, visible and invisible. And it's about God's son, God's son who is, who is like God, not like us. He's begotten, not made. 
and the, and the story of Jesus, and in the Holy Ghost, the uh, Lord and giver of life, and in the church, that's this group, that's us, right? So as we read these scriptures, not just the ones that we have a hard time understanding, but even the ones that we think we understand, like all of it kind of needs to be framed by the tradition so that when our readings kind of run askew of the tradition, it might cause us to kind of venture back toward it. It's like a, it's like a guide, like a compass, so to speak. Um, and that's, that's what Wesley meant by tradition. Sometimes we say in, in the essentials unity and the non-essentials diversity and all things charity. Well, this is kind of the essentials, right? If you're not, you're not really Christian, if you can't kind of adhere to this kind of ancient story or creed. He, of course, he, he combined this then also with reason. So, again, it's sometimes difficult for people, some modern people especially, when they read the Bible because it sounds so ancient and then they, they know of a world that doesn't quite fit just right. Yeah? So, you know, if, if heaven is up and hell is down and earth's in the middle, then, then how can cosmology be true? Right? I mean, the, the cosmologists that talk about the speed of light and, and the distance of stars and the numbers of galaxies and where did the dinosaurs come in and why didn't they fit, it, fit in the ark, right? So we have this kind of, these multiple stories that kind of conflict a bit, or at least they seem to conflict a bit, as to kind of what we believe and how we behave in practice. And so the, the challenge, of course, is, <clears throat> particularly in, in, in the modern movement, we have um, given so much credence to kind of scientific kind of proof, and this is what knowledge is, that we try to make sure Scripture can fit into those categories. But I'm not convinced Scripture was ever intended to be talked about in those categories. And so it ends up kind of causing uh, conflict that is really just uh, arbitrary. It's, we, we kinda, we're kind of making up the problems ourselves. Uh, you, you, you don't ask an ancient Hebrew poem uh, a scientific question. And, and you don't ask a scientist uh, about the, the meaning of life. I mean, you might get kind of how things work, but not why they are, Right? And so, we don't have to jettison our reason. Uh, we can be contemporary people of science and, and still hold our scriptures as a sacred text that, that teach us and guide us and direct us. And certainly, um, Wesley was, was in, in favor of that. There's this passage of scripture <clears throat> that I wanted to share. It comes from Jude, verse 3. So Jude only has one chapter. So Jude, verse 3 uh, he writes this, Beloved, while eagerly preparing to write to you about the salvation we share, I find it necessary to write and appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Uh, this, this was the tagline of a newspaper that existed between uh, 1906 and 1909 in Los Angeles. 
I mention this because this is my particular faith tradition, right? So in 1906, there was this revival that broke out in Los Angeles. It was kind of on the other side of the tracks. It was led by this guy named William Seymour, who's this one-eyed, black, holiness preacher from Texas. And it kind of produced, a, a, a not, it was not solely, but it was a major catalyst in producing uh, the modern kind of Pentecostal movement, which has expressions kind of all over the world. But he produced a newspaper, and he called it the Apostolic Faith. And the tagline under, under the title, Apostolic Faith, the, the epigraph for every single issue for those three years that it ran was this verse of Scripture, to contend for the faith. So it, it makes sense that you might be able to explain kind of what you believe, even if what you believe is in large part a mystery. At the very least, you can say, this is a mystery. Like, that's a legitimate answer. Like, how, how is it that Christians believe in the Trinity? Well, that's a mystery. Well, can you say more? Well, I can, but not today. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like a, a mystery, an I don't know is an honest answer that, that can, um, that is a, a rational answer, right? It's, it's better to say I don't know than to make up something that you don't which is, I think, what we tend to do um, more often maybe than we should. I would say this, that in the contemporary world, I think we're better off when it comes to reason to lean into our faithful witness than to try and argue um, with non-believers. Like, your primary goal should not be, can I prove that someone who doesn't believe what I believe that they're wrong and I'm right. Your primary goal should be a faithful witness to them. Now, if you believe, if, if, if you have faith, if you love God, if you believe that God loves you, if you feel like you're, you're experiencing those things, and if you think you find those things in your tradition, and you find those things in your scriptures, then bear witness to it, right? You can, you can, you can be a faithful witness. Uh, you can be a person of forgiveness and grace and mercy because you've received forgiveness and grace and mercy. And as such, then, uh, as opposed to trying to kind of use the Scriptures as a lever, you can use them as that which forms you into uh, a faithful witness. I just particularly think it's far more beneficial than the argumentation that I sometimes hear. Uh, lastly, is experience. So there's scripture, we've talked about that. There's tradition, which includes the creeds. Uh, there's reason. And, and then there's our experience. Um, Wesley's own testimony, I think, is a good analogy uh, of how this works. So he, he grew up in the church. Uh, he went to university. He trained. He studied. Uh, graduated. He he was ordained by the church. He you know, became a priest, and he was ministering in a church. And then he went to a Bible study. It was uh, on a street called Aldersgate, and they were studying Romans, and the book they were reading to help them study Romans was a commentary written by Martin Luther, interestingly enough. We're celebrating you know, the 500th year of his event. And they weren't even reading the main text, like Luther's comment on Romans. So they're not reading Romans. They're not reading Luther's comment on Romans. 
They're actually reading the preface to Luther's commentary. And Wesley said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. He had this experience with God that, that changed kind of who he was. And the rest of his life, it was that experience that kind of changed him. There's countless stories of how this works. Um, Mother Teresa, right, who we all love and respect. You know, she passes and her personal journals get edited and published. And some of us are shocked and some of us are actually scared by the fact that she said, it's been 40 years since I felt the presence of God. What? Right? I can't go 40 days without feeling the presence of God. If I didn't feel God for 40 days, I might just give up. How's she going 40 years without doing it? Because what she felt was real, right? She's, she's, she's in it for the long run because she had an experience, a real experience. Just this week, uh, unsolicited about pre preparation for this sermon, I had, I had two of you uh, tell me about your own lives and how you had a very particular experience with God and how that experience kind of transformed you. Now, some people say, oh, experience, it's anecdotal, you know, it can't be trusted, you know, you can, you can experience things and, and it not be what you think it is. Yes, all of that's true, but experience is also real, right? This is not just a faith that deals with ideas. Um, there was a version of Christianity that just dealt with ideas. It was called Gnostic Christianity, and the early church wasn't too happy with it. That's why they wrote these creeds saying, this is what we believe, not that. But I'm afraid that a lot of what we do sometimes is closer to the Gnostic version than it is to the historical version. Because it's, if I believe these certain things about God or about Jesus, I'm good to go. No, Jesus was made flesh and dwelt among us, right? He hugged people. He loved them. He touched them. He healed them. He ate with them. He cried with them. It's, it's a fully orbed, embodied faith, the Christian faith. And it is meant to be experienced. And if you found yourself kind of going through the motions a bit, because I don't know, your mom did or your, your youth pastor did, and now or, you, know, you venture away in life for a certain bit, and then, I don't know, you have kids, so you think, oh, I should take them to church, so you kind of come back, right? There, there is an experience to be had. Try it. Pray. Sing. Worship. Take communion. Love your neighbor. See if that doesn't do something to you. You will experience God, and that experience will, along with your reason and our tradition, will help us read our scriptures in ways that are faithful, which is really what we're interested in. Don't discount tradition. It's a valuable and trusted source. Did I say tradition? I meant to say experience. Tradition too. Don't <laughs> discount uh, experience. It's a valuable and trusted source. Uh, don't discount any of these kind of uh, sources of authority, because together they do kind of form 
uh, who we are. 